Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about the business of discrimination. I'm calling for a no-Pharisee shopping spree. This particular focus for an inappropriate conversation show is going to be proactive rather than reactive, or at least that's the plan. At the time that I'm recording this, some of the things that I'm going to predict a response to have not yet happened. Now, there's always a chance that in that lag time between recording, editing, and releasing, some of the things I'm saying we should be ready for may have already occurred, or it's always possible that some of the things that I'm kind of predicting and preparing for may not occur and may never occur. But being a planner by nature, I think it's probably important for us to anticipate things which are at least reasonably possible and create strategies for dealing with it, rather than always being on the back foot and reacting only because that creates the real risk and the real possibility of overreacting or not being prepared at the time when the when the moment of response is so desperately needed. We're dealing at a point in the current presidential administration, where we're hearing, obviously, a lot of things which are at the the most generous thing you can say about it is that the president and his leadership staff get confused often and make statements which are not true often out of error. Or we're dealing with the single greatest piece of misinformation at the federal government level in my lifetime and perhaps even beyond my memory. And that is saying quite a lot. We don't really think of national politics in concert with a great deal of honesty, integrity, openness, and transparency, do we? And so if we're hitting an all-time low in that area, then again, that's really saying something. But I think it's reasonable to look at where things are now from the perspective of the ignoring of the Constitution, the sidestepping of Merrick Garland, the now putting forth a new nominee to the uh, Supreme Court opening created by the death of Antonin Scalia a year ago. And that candidate, that nominee, being uh, in many ways uh, having perspectives that have been expressed both in his private life and on the bench, which would could be construed as being against the LGBT agenda. So it's right to look and say, that maybe Donald Trump's words that he doesn't intend to roll back protections for gay people in the workplace and in federal contracting and etc. I don't know that that can be trusted. He has been, again, to be very, very generous, completely unpredictable, uh, seeming to not be able to count, to not have a gauge of the number of people in a crowd photo side by side with another group of a number of people in a crowd photo, uh, not having much of a of a perspective about what it means to say that we're going to eliminate the immigration from seven of the largest majority Muslim countries in the Middle East, but we're going to make an exception, an active, proactive exception for Christians, and we're going to make a quiet, behind-the-scenes, silent exception for Jews, and yet that not have any sort of a religious, that not be a religious litmus test, the ability to maintain these two concepts at the same time must be extremely difficult for people who 
fall with a heavy bias on the politically conservative side of the spectrum, which might explain why so many of them are continuing to lash out angrily, verbally violently, and on occasion actually violently, because we're seeing as much sore winner aggression and violence as we are sore loser aggression and violence going all the way back to the election results in November. So I guess what I'm saying is that you have to look at what the candidate Trump and his followers and supporters, the people that he listens to, what have they said they want to do? What have they said they're trying to undo? And how can we untangle the mess of what it is that has made Barack Obama so offensive to so many people? And then anticipate what the policy reactions of that might be. And my guess is that the number one thing that we probably could all agree about is that all of this talk about religious liberty, all the talk about religious freedom, seems to be hinging around what I would describe as LGBT issues. That I have yet to, but I'm entertaining the idea of maybe, putting a survey out there somewhere. I don't know that putting it out in an inappropriate conversations direction is the, the best way to go. I might do it on my personal Facebook page, maybe in combination of the two, but I would love to have people who are far more politically conservative than I am and who seem to believe, uh, I think they could pass a lie detector test, they genuinely believe that Barack Obama is the worst president in the history of human civilization, or at least the history of the United States, to explain to me what their big reason is for thinking so. I would love to come down to the one big key thing in the minds of all those people, in the theory that it would be probably three or four or five different ideas that would drive that thought process among those people who feel so passionately in this direction. Because I don't think it can be just one thing. It's not like you can point to to Watergate uh, in the case of Nixon or to the Monica Lewinsky scandal in the case of Clinton and say, well, there's obviously the one big thing. Because a lot of the things that I think I would consider to be things that happened in the last eight years that would be so upsetting to politically conservative people, they might have to be really embarrassed if they called it out and tried to pin the tail on the donkey they've named Obama. Because, you know, the the federal budget deficit exploding in the first couple of years of his term to try to deal with the economic consequences of the, you know, kind of the sad lot he'd been handed by the Bush administration based on decisions made during the Bush years and before that during the Clinton years, and perhaps even going back to the previous Bush and Reagan, I don't know that you can blame Obama for things you just have to do to clean up somebody else's mess. No, we're more likely to find that a lot of this anger and this vitriol and this passion is coming from the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling on gay marriage, marriage equality ruling, I think probably would surface as a really high mark. Because in other areas, uh, pro-life kinds of things, I could cite just as many examples where during the Obama administration, experiments were done that were so successful that it is clear that Obama's policies and policies of, of democratically-led states like Minnesota would do a tremendous amount to slash the rate of unwanted pregnancy by as much as 50% or more. So clearly, there's maybe a mixed record. I think if you come to issues of uh, abortion from a strictly pro-life perspective, then there's going to be some people who are just always evil because they think differently than you. But if you can then come along and line up policy decisions where some of them clearly held down the abortion rate, while others sort of ignored it and treated abortion as 
as an inevitability that perhaps should be maintained as a safe and legal possibility, that even if you were offended by half of that prospect, there's something really wrong with you if you're offended by the other half. I think the one area where, at least in the last, say, five years of his eight-year two-term presidency, Obama was probably the most disappointing to some people would be his acceptance of the existence of homosexuals and um, his decision that based on that being a reality and that not being just a choice, as some folks have maintained, that he feels like and felt like that that is a group of people who deserved protection based on things beyond their control. The who am I stuff uh, that there is an argument that can be made that there are many things, not just skin color, that are beyond someone's ability to manage change and control, and that we should not discriminate against anybody based on those things which are beyond their ability to change or control. So I think from that perspective, I want to focus specifically there and bring together the concept of this religious liberty idea with what that means for the future of the protection of the equality of gay people in our society, lay out what some of the key problems are and what those risks are. And then, maybe unlike what I've done here for the last six months, I actually offer some ideas on how to deal with it. I've been probably, and not alone in this, but probably spent more than just the past few shows simply complaining. Either complaining or kind of circling the wagons and ignoring the problem. Um, But after an episode or two of trying to find some solace in a happy place, I want to go back to some political issues that are facing us, political issues with clear religious implications, and talk about what's to come. And if we're facing a worst-case scenario, what are we going to do about it? So first, is there reason to think we may be facing a worst-case scenario? I think there absolutely is. Uh, Trump and his supporters have made two conflicting sets of claims. Uh, They floated out trial balloons that would roll back virtually all federal protection for gay and lesbian and trans people. And uh, he has pretty much demonstrated a track record of wanting to do the things he said he's going to do, even if confronted with a lot of evidence that it's a bad idea. I think the way the Muslim ban was handled, or whatever you want to call it. So let's let me take a, a far more politically moderate perspective here and say, you wanted to temporarily halt immigration from seven countries and seven countries only for three or four months at the most, that all of it was temporary and all of it was very carefully targeted. And then we won't get into the questions, again, trying to be willfully positive, uh, holding people from the political right in unconditional positive regard and say, yeah, the countries that were selected, they may not have had any record of ever attacking Americans on American soil. We're coming up with a big goose egg there, but maybe there's some uh, intelligence that I'm not privy to that says that we easily could have or that we might imminently yet be. Perhaps it's just a coincidence that the obvious countries left off this list do a ton of business with Trump and his family and his holdings, that that may be just purely a coincidence. But to me, the gist of it is two things. First, Trump said as a candidate in his campaigns, in the debates that he was going to do this. And I think even, again, if there's evidence that it's probably not the smartest strategy in the world, that it may do more to empower enemies like ISIS than anything that we could possibly do, that it's short-sighted to say the least, he is at least trying to do some of the things he said he was going to do. 
So his stance and attitude toward gays, gays, lesbian, and trans people and bi people has been this incredibly negative rhetoric that he has then trucked back and sort of made some promises about defending and protecting people that we've heard all this before. The other thing I think that makes some of his approach extremely short-sighted is that he and his administration do not even seem to understand the concept of draw a line in the sand. So an idea like, I'm going to make a radical shift in the way we've approached a specific policy, one with international implications, one that we've heard some evidence and anecdotal stories that are clearly a matter of life and death, including life and death for for children, uh, very young children, who uh, we pride ourselves on being such a great nation and having such uh, great knowledge and ability and uh, being a Christian nation with such a compassionate heart that if there was a child somewhere in the world who needed a medical procedure that kind of did have to be performed in the United States of America, we have let at least a couple of those kids just cut them off and hope they don't die in the next three months. It's kind of the, the way the policy has gone. And that runs so far afoul of the concept of being a saber rattler who's not just going to speak softly and carry a big stick, but speak loudly and perhaps brandish a big stick when the time comes. When you draw a line in the sand, you give people enough information to say, starting at this point, this is going to happen unless. So get your crap together. Now, in this case, he may have been doing nothing more than saying, there is no unless here. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it 30 days from now, 60 days from now, long enough that nobody has bought a plane ticket that they're not going to have to eat that no one has bypassed the opportunity to engage in one course of medical treatment because a major breakthrough kind of almost a experimental solution is available to them in the United States that you don't you haven't given up a course of treatment because that other course of treatment's available only to see that suddenly ripped out from underneath you like a carpet being a rug being pulled out from underneath your feet so that's what drawing a line in the sand does and of course when confronted with that, the president had some lame answer, and, and this is, again, me holding an unconditional positive regard, a lame answer that if he drew that line in the sand somewhere in the future, then all the bad dudes would, would clamor to sneak in through that window that he left open and come into the country. And we all know that our current extreme vetting process for immigration is more than a year long, oftentimes more than two years long, and at no point is there a loophole in our current vetting process, even if you think little of it, even if you don't even begin to understand it, it's not 30 days long. It's not 60 days long. No one would be sneaking in through that open window. So anything less than six months would have sufficed. So we've got somebody who says one thing, does another, doesn't seem to have enough political kind of perspective to know the right way to get things done, doesn't apparently see the world from the perspective of, the potential good and the potential pitfalls, maybe doesn't understand side effects all that well. Because I think most decisions you make, you've got to make the decision both from the perspective of, if I do this, what do I hope to achieve? How likely am I to get what I want? But then what are the consequences of doing it that may not be so positive? And if the goal I'm trying to achieve is suspect at best that I could ever actually get anywhere near it, but the consequences are incredibly likely and, and could be immense and long-standing and hugely impactful, well, then you'd make decisions differently from that perspective. You'd drive differently if you were aware of the road conditions in the dead of winter, for example. It wouldn't just be, what's this car capable of? Let me take it out for a spin. So assuming that the president is very capable 
backtracking on any recent assurances he's made and using executive orders and other directives to simply erase as much as possible any protections related to things like saying somebody that can't be eliminated from a bid for work because of their sexual orientation or can't be fired from a job that they hold for no other reason than getting married or moving in with their uh, beloved that uh, you could you can't you know we're not going to come along and like sort of erase the legality of the marriage documents of millions of people we're probably not going to do that i think we have to look honestly and say there's a real chance that that kind of stuff could happen and that's before you even get into court cases coming through the system where businesses uh, i think hobby lobby would be a great example of this where where businesses would love the ability to bypass any sort of anti-discrimination laws that may be in place at any level of our society. This isn't just federal government. We're talking about states and cities and counties and other municipalities that they would not be in any way held accountable for discriminating against some kinds of people. And I would think that a lot of the folks who would like the right to say, hey, I'm a business owner, therefore discrimination against customers is within my power. I refuse the right to refuse service to anyone, that idea that they probably certainly wouldn't even stop at questions of sexual orientation or gender identification, the color of skin would certainly creep right back into it. I've described the crisis that we we could be facing here as a new set of sweeping national Jesus Crow laws. But they could easily be Jim Crow as well as Jesus Crow. There is no reason why we wouldn't backslide uh, on the question of race at the same time that we would be backsliding on these other questions of Things that Christians mistakenly perceive Jesus has condemned, and therefore they have the right to condemn them. And in their personal life, they absolutely do. It's free country, First Amendment stands. But the question is whether or not businesses should be behaving the same way. Whether businesses, like corporations, should be behaving as people. Just as a side note, my personal thoughts on this are that I believe that the concept of public accommodation has a lot to do with the fact that all of us, as taxpayers, as citizens, in in various ways, have contributed collectively. Now, people who freak out about even the word socialism freak out in ways that make you question whether they understand it. Obviously, struggle to even hear anything else I'm about to say. But I will tell you that everything else I'm about to say is absolutely true. No one business, in most cases, has individual accountability and responsibility and therefore complete control over the roads that we have built, the laws that govern transit against those roads, the airwaves, both in the sense of the way um, messages transmit across our media, like the internet, or the airways literally in the sky, uh, plane transit. How do uh, UPS and FedEx and other people get packages from one place to another? A lot of these things don't come free. They didn't spontaneously combust out of thin air. They came from the collective contribution of every member of our society through taxation and other means. And therefore, for someone who functions inside that public sphere, who has put their business on a public street corner, um, who uh, uses the roads that the rest of us share and have responsibility to maintain as means of getting their products to and from, or even getting their customers to their door, at that point, I don't think you do have the right to come along and suggest that you have the power, under the notion of being able to refuse the right to serve anyone, to discriminate on the basis of things that are beyond the control of the person that you're doing business with as a customer. So first, I've dropped the concept of not believing this idea that 
sexual preference is a choice and so forth. Let me dismiss that one just with one simple quote of a tweet. I can be reached uh, via Twitter. At IC underscore Greg is how you find me there. I also have a Facebook page for Inappropriate Conversations. It's listed as a cause. Another Facebook page for the podcast Walk the Earth, which uh, has not officially ceased yet, but it's certainly on hiatus right now. But I want to go to Twitter where uh, conversations related to both Inappropriate Conversations and Walk the Earth share space and just kind of mention, just as dismissing the argument against my point of view about sexuality with a single quote of a single penned tweet. Christians who truly believe sexuality is a choice are surely deeply closeted bisexuals in need of prayer and help for their self-loathing. That it is possible that there's someone out there who thinks that their sexuality is purely a choice, but those people would have to be bisexual or in some other manner lying to each other or lying to us to manipulate the political system. No, I dismiss the argument. We're dealing with people who don't have any ability to fundamentally change who they are. If they're a woman who's fallen in love with another woman, or a man who's fallen in love with another man, and suddenly the dry cleaner would prefer not to do business with those kinds of people because of his perception of his Christian values, which don't add up because Jesus never said two words about homosexuality, so there's no condemnation from Christ. The person who Christians believe fulfilled the law and granted an atonement for humans on the cross. The person who Paul, no matter whatever else he may said in a long list of things, making a political argument over two chapters in books like Roman and Corinthians, where you can't just isolate verses and take him out of context, laid out in a complete letter to Galatians, chapter after chapter after chapter, including challenging people like Peter, the rock upon whom the church is presumably built, calling him out as a hypocrite in the very first chapter of that particular letter, laying out that the law is gone. So Jesus can't be used by any intelligent understanding of Christianity and what Christianity means as someone who's condemned homosexuals. It's just factually untrue. But leave the theology aside for now and let's just deal back with the the question of governance and politics, the fact of the matter is that a business absolutely has the right to refuse service to anyone who is disrupting their business, uh, who is creating a negative environment for other customers, who is you know damaging to their profit margin. Uh, it's perfectly appropriate for somebody who is serially buying and refunding merchandise that can't be resold or returned to the original manufacturer, treating a retail organization like some sort of library where shoes and clothing can be checked out for a big occasion and then checked back in for full refund, it is perfectly appropriate for a business to refuse service to that person. It's appropriate for a business to refuse service to somebody who is verbally castigating their staff for no earthly reason, somebody who disrupts other customers, somebody in one booth of a restaurant who is hawking loogies and spitting them across the room and at other customers. It's perfectly appropriate for any reason whatsoever to remove that customer. But to meet that customer at the door and say, you're black, you can't, you can't shop here. Or you're gay, you can't buy frames or photos or you know, order a cake here. That is unacceptable. That is beyond the pale, and in part because all of us have created the society around which the public side of this business works. Now, I'm going to defend and defend strongly 
that churches should be exempt from the concept of public accommodation, but I'm going to draw the line at hospitals and medical care because while they may fall less along the business side of the spectrum, they are also an essential service. And I do not support the idea that a hospital ought to be able to meet somebody at the door and say, I realize that's a very dangerous knife wound and that there's a very good chance you might bleed to death as a result of it. But based on what I've overheard you say and the way you filled out your paperwork, you do not believe that you are the gender in personality and psychology that your sexual body organs seem to indicate you are physiologically and biologically. Therefore you get to bleed to death. I don't buy that. I don't think that's a place that we ought to go. A lot of the conversation with people who are outraged over medical care being given for people who are in our country, whether as citizens or immigrants, whether as immigrants legal or illegal, that I don't believe we want to be setting up a standard where we're going to refuse emergency medical care for somebody who is badly injured and desperately in need, where whether they're insured or not is the first question as to whether or not they're going to live or die. That is not who we are. And we may say, well, hey, that's the way the church functions. Any church can decide whether they're going to open or close their doors to somebody. The, the church's offering of salvation is perhaps in many cases, or maybe even all cases, conditional. Yes, but that's not what the Hippocratic Oath is all about. That is not the way we have delivered medicine for my entire lifetime, and frankly, probably for the lifetimes of anyone who's listening. This goes way back to probably even before the Civil War. It might be part of our country from the very start that medical care is not divvied out in a manner that if you can pay for it up front, you get it. If you can't, you don't. Or if we live for a period of time that way at the uh, the initial toddler years of our country, uh, then thank the Lord we've grown past it and out of it. So there's a lot of different things going on here. There's the church, which, you know, frankly, needs to be able to control its membership as a private entity. There are other private entities that I think have to be given a great deal of control. But when the shingle you've put up outside your business says you're engaging in buying and selling and trading and that you're using public roadways to deliver inventory to and from your store, that you're leveraging those same roadways to allow customers to come to and from your store, when you're tapping into public utilities in terms of the power that you're consuming and paying for and telecommunication services that you're consuming and paying for, that you are engaging in the public aspect of public accommodation and therefore you can't discriminate, well, you you just can't discriminate willy-nilly. That you might be able to refuse service to anyone for any reason, but there's got to be a reason that's better than just what you look like, or the color of your skin. So as I mentioned, we're kind of in danger of seeing a resurgence of some form of Jim Crow laws, and I've kind of been calling them in my own private personal discourse Jesus Crow laws because people are using a perception of the primacy of their religious beliefs as an excuse to engage in what they think is justifiable discrimination against other people. And don't fool yourself. The focus right now may be upon gay, lesbian, bi, and trans people, but it could easily be extended from there to include questions of race or questions of age to go along with the gender. Certainly, uh, the same ideas could be used to leverage a discrimination against people who have been married more than one time. That actually has a much better biblical mandate in the very words of Jesus than anything that I've cited before that in this list of things, which... I'm not 100% sure that the newest configuration of the U.S. Supreme Court is going to come down and make the right decision the right way. If given the opportunity, would that Supreme Court create chaos in our country 
by overturning a ruling that would return us back to 30-plus states have a recognition of uh, marriage equality and, you know, um, the balance, you know, the 15, 20 other states don't. And those 15, 20 other states, many of them have laws that say that for the first time, really, kind of in violation of some of our concepts of of commerce, that there are certain contracts we we won't recognize in this state versus other states, in particular marriage contracts, but marriage contracts for just some people. And then the other one that I want to focus on is the concept of not just the relationship of businesses to customer, where I think I'm going to come along here in a second and just make a blanket statement that's so obvious that anybody who is in favor of the current tide seeming to turn in the direction of religious protection laws um, being used to deny business to certain people based on that business owner's personal piety and their sense of the degrees of sinfulness of other people. Again, Christians who have no idea what the letter to the book of James means, but call themselves Christians all the same because it's about branding more than, than true faith, in my opinion. But the other one that I worry about is hiring and firing. You know, theoretically, we ought to be able to live in a country where you can't be fired just because there's a new sheriff in town and the new manager, the new president, the new CEO of that particular organization just happens to not like brown and black people. Therefore, anybody who doesn't look white enough are out of here. Well, that seems a little bit, a little bit on the outrageous side. I think probably the courts would step up and, and protect that based on previous rulings. But I don't feel at all confident with the current number of states that have no laws in place that would protect a gay person from being fired in exactly the same way for exactly the same kinds of reasons. You can take your very best person in your company who's doing an outstanding job taking care of customer service, who, if you measure them based on sales, have the best sales record in the entire organization, or if you measure them based on manufacturing, have the best use of materials and supplies in the entire organization. Their throughput is outstanding. Their record is impeccable. But you can have a change where the new president of the company or the new manager of that store basically just says, yeah, but he sounds a little bit too effeminate to me. He's out of here because I'm going to assert my right, my Trump-given right, to fire anybody on the basis of my perception of their gender or sexuality and whether I personally, based on my own deeply held personal religious beliefs, find that to be somehow sinful enough to be beyond the pale. So that's a legitimate worry, and perhaps my biggest worry, because I think that that's not at all beyond the realm of possibility. We're all employees at will, for the most part, most people who have a job in this country. It's like the sports analogy. Uh, whether you're injured or not, we're all listed day to day. At any point, you could you could be taken out. But you'd like to think that there would at least be a good business reason for doing it. That one, I think, is a real concern because a lot of those decisions would be uh, beyond public view. It's not going to be as easy for us to see what's going on on that side of the way companies might behave in a world where discrimination was once again blessed as the norm, which again is the direction I feel like it's realistic to plan for us heading in. It's also realistic to hope we won't go there, but it would be naive to not be planning for the worst case scenario. I have much less patience about the customer side of the equation. To me, any business for any reason would take a whole set of customers, whether it's a large set or whether it's a small set and say, I, re I realize that's a good, valid credit card you've got there, or I know for a fact that that check's not going to bounce, or th those are legitimate greenbacks that are valid U.S. currency. Nothing's counterfeit about them. I just don't want your money. I have a real problem with a business 
offering a service to everyone and anyone, who then decides that they're not going to actually take the money or provide the service to somebody who legitimately desires the service, would positively recommend the business for providing the service, and the reason is based on nothing more than something beyond their control. Nothing more than what they look like, whether they've got a different perspective of gender than I do, whether they've fallen in love with somebody that I wouldn't fall in love with if I were them. All these things which are as beyond their control as the color of their skin, the color of their hair, the color of their eyes. In fact, color of your hair is probably the thing most within people's control. But remember, to look at these folks with an unconditional positive regard, to try to find the nicest, most positive thing I can say about people who clearly lack one of the fundamental elements of business sense to such an extreme degree that it strikes me as miraculous they've been successful in business for as long as they have, that the idea that say, well, you can control the color of your hair is a bit like saying, I just want you to lie to me. And that, I think, is really what's going on. If you get to middle America, the heart of the heart of the country, where there are nice-seeming, and in many ways perhaps actually genuinely nice people, who just really want to distance themselves from another group of people. They want to segregate themselves from things that they don't currently understand and would prefer not to understand. And they're, they're not saying, most of them are not saying, hey, let's round up all the gays and put them to death. Most of them are just really mad that those gay people don't have to pretend they're straight anymore. And the Supreme Court undermined their dream of being able to get back to the place where you can be a committed bachelor living forever with your buddy from college and not have anything, no, no hanky-panky going on, or at least don't tell me there is, because I just want to believe that there's some people who just never found the right woman. Will you please just lie to me about who you are? Now, how you harmonize the I want people to lie to me about who they are with a Christian worldview is kind of beyond me. And it's just as much beyond me to harmonize how a business could look. And if you look at the most recent election results and draw a conclusion that the people who voted for Clinton are most of them, maybe not all of them, but most of them are very sympathetic to the idea that we ought to be treating GLBTQ people equally. And when you say, hey, if you voted for that damned Obama, don't bother shopping in my store. I actually saw a sign. I think it was, again, from this Midwest part of the country, one of the Louisiana Purchase red states, where somebody had put that. They bought one of those action signs and used stencil letters to put up their own message to all their customers. And instead of, you know, uh, end-of-season clearance sale or uh, come check out our brand-new line of whatever, it said, if you voted for that damned Obama, keep your sorry ass out of our stores. In other words... More than half the country voted for Obama. More than half the country voted for Clinton in the popular vote. I'm not sure that it's good business sense to be asking half the people who might shop at your store to stay out for reasons that have nothing to do with the products you're selling, their desire to buy those products, their ability to pay, or your ability to maintain an inventory level. All those things are about good business. There may be occasions when you have to pick and choose which customer is when to buy your products because you have so few of them left. You have an inventory problem. And a lot of times that is just first come, first serve. But a lot of times there's a reservation process where you're going to say, hey, I, I do serve weddings. Therefore, even though I have 100 pieces of this left, I know I'm going to save 50 pieces for the 10 people who've told me that they want some of that for their wedding. Therefore, only half of my available inventory is available to people who may just walk up. Again, there's nothing wrong with that. It's right to be able to refuse service to anyone for any reason if in this case... 
You're refusing to sell inventory you actually have because that inventory has been promised to somebody else. That's fine. And it's even okay if the inventory you're promising to people, they all happen to be straight people, and it's a gay person who's missing out because they weren't first come, first served soon enough. But it's very different if what you're saying is, I'm just waiting for the Supreme Court to make a ruling. I'm waiting for the two Republican houses of Congress to pass a law or rescind a law. I'm waiting for a new executive order for Trump, because as soon as that happens, I'm going to tell 35, 45% of the people who live in this country to get the hell out of my store. Somewhere, the logic of that betrays any reasonable understanding of good business. And why in the world are we as a country even considering creating an accommodation for people who are that inept and that incompetent at the very thing they tell us they're trying to do, run a business. Hi, this is Jason from the Atomic Trivia War 9000 here with your lightning round. What rap star named his dog White Boy and his 14-year-old protege Lil Bow Wow? That's Snoop Dogg. What comedy duo penned a book explaining culinary tricks like stabbing a fork in your eye? The answer? Penn and Teller. And who bid adieu to the NBA in 1999 without making good on his promise to strip naked in the final game? If you guessed Dennis Rodman, then you chose wisely. Join ATW9K here today and get lots more trivia questions. We'll see you then. SimplySyndicated.com So I'm really torn here because what are we going to do about it? question I said I would get to this time, even though I've, you know, in a lot of cases have not done much with that. The temptation is to say I'm going to boycott. And I think if I say I'm going to boycott, I think that's probably okay. And that's a direction I might actually head in a little bit here. And if I say we are going to boycott, but only in the sense that there's a lot of independent people who've made their own I'm going to boycott decision. And if it happens to be the same decision, great. And if it happens to be slightly different, I'm not presuming to tell everyone else what they have to do. And that's kind of the difference because I'm not 100% convinced that I can get on the boycott train. I'm not enthusiastic about the idea of boycotts even really making a lot of sense. And even when they work, it almost seems to be something that works by accident. Let me call out a couple of examples where I don't think that there's something, where I think there's something wrong with the idea of boycott, or at least the way we hear boycott expressed when it comes to boycotting using my relationship as customer to business. I'm not going to watch that movie. I'm not going to watch that TV show. I'm not going to buy those products. I'm not going to step foot in that store. And let me start with Target. A few years ago, Target made an announcement that they were going to eliminate a gender divide in the way they merchandised and managed their toy purchasing. That they have evidence to believe that the way people shop has changed and that they no longer need to worry about pink toys are just for girls and blue toys are just for boys. And not that they ever in the history of their company ever policed that. You know, I've never even seen or heard of anybody checking out with a toy at Target and having the cashier stop the transaction to say, I need to understand who this, this pink, you know, dollhouse is for. And if the mom says, well, I'm buying it for my son, transaction over, you're not allowed to buy that. That was never actually true. It's just now that they were extending to the merchandising and purchasing process, something that actually had been part of their corporate philosophy all along. That's if you want to buy something from me, I'll sell it to you. But that one little decision freaked out the Franklin Grahams and John Pipers of the world and led to the religious right calling for an immediate permanent boycott of Target. Okay, fine. Several years go by and Target makes an announcement. Not that they were changing their policy on how they managed the usage of their bathroom, but they were reiterating a policy that had once again been in place for a long time, that uh, Target wasn't putting 
uh, store employees as guards to check the junk of people going into the bathroom to make sure that they're only sitting down when they couldn't stand up and they're only standing, you know, standing. No, they never did that. They weren't doing it. They were just basically saying, listen, there's a lot of controversy going on around transgendered people. It's something that for most of the history of our country we've not understood. There's still a lot of people in our country who still don't have the first clue about it. And we're just saying we don't view our bathrooms as being um, a place where you've got like a toll booth check guard. you got to show your papers to get in. Once again, the religious right freaking out, Franklin Graham and others calling for a boycott. And it stops me in my tracks when this happens, and I say to myself, hang on a second. Weren't you already boycotting? How do you re-boycott something that you were boycotting unless the word boycott doesn't mean anything? You keep using that word boycott. I do not think it means what you think it means. And if you've if your boycott has not successfully taken them out of business, forced a hostile takeover by stockholders or stakeholders, uh, caused them to radically change their worldview or their philosophy, if they're still disappointing you as a politically conservative person in the same way as a company over and over and over again, clearly your boycott is not having any impact whatsoever. I'm not 100% convinced that anything I've refused to buy as an individual customer for any reason is designed to make somebody go out of business or is designed to force them to change their policies. If it happens, it happens. It's more about how well I'm going to sleep at night. And I will tell you right up front, I've never lost one single moment sleep in my entire life over the color of somebody's toy. And I'm not going to. And I don't spend a lot of time worrying about who's in the restroom stall next to me because if I had my way, I'd always be in the restroom by myself. That every morning I wake up and it's usually one of the first things I do in the morning. I walk into a trans-friendly, gender-neutral bathroom in my home and use the bathroom. It's a bathroom that is used and could be used at any given time by anybody of, of two or more different genders, and I've never lost a moment's sleep about it. It's fair to question whether or not a boycott is actually the best way to go. Having said that, I do think that it is morally wrong for us as a group of people who care about other people, who are in that... 50 or more percent majority of folks who actually know and love somebody who falls into one of the groups of people who are likely to get attacked under the auspices of a business owner or someone else, quote unquote, protecting their religious freedom. If we don't stand up for people who are gay, lesbian, bi, transgender, genderqueer, intersex, asexual, um, black, Hispanic, immigrants to our country, if we don't stand up for those people in the midst of public accommodation and access to services, if we don't stand up for those people when it comes to not being fired for nothing that they can control, not being fired because somebody doesn't like who they are as a person, irrespective of how they do the job, well, then when are we going to stand up? So let's assume that the worst happens and that there is going to be a Supreme Court ruling or an executive order or a new law coming out of Congress. What do we do then? As I mentioned, I kind of a paradox here. On the one hand, I've, I've never really been that big of a fan of the notion of a nationwide boycott against something. But on the other hand, I have personally boycotted and been true to that boycott for many, many years in the way I individually decide on how I'm going to spend my money. And the fact that probably most people, even people who've listened to almost all these inappropriate conversations, have not really heard this before, or heard it, but it was mentioned so casually that they wouldn't remember it, I may be providing new information, even if it's new information that I've kind of dropped hints at more than one time in the past. I have, 
since the very late 1980s, say from 1986 or 87 to today, drunk one Coors beer in that entire time. And part of that is, well, yeah, I'm not really that big of a fan of your of your typical American mass-produced beer. There's much more interesting things to drink out there. And for somebody who enjoys beer and drinks beer, um, not spending a lot of time seeking out your Miller products is not that big of a that's not that big of a sacrifice. Um, something that's so easy to find is therefore kind of easy to ignore. It becomes part of the wallpaper, but it's not an accident. Um, I threw a party. My wife and I threw a party a few years ago. It was a martini party, so we didn't have a lot of people bringing beer to the party. We were kind of providing the drinks and had a very excellent designated driver game plan. But there was one person at the party who doesn't really like vodka or gin and brought her own beer. And the beer she chose to bring was Coors Light. And I think she brought three or four with her, left one behind. And the one she left behind was in my fridge. And at one point I had to make a decision. Am I going to pour this out because of my beef with Coors or am I going to drink it? And to be honest, the right answer was probably if we were going to have hot dogs or something that week, that I could have used the Coors Light can as the basis for boiling the hot dogs and preparing a meal and kind of sort of split the difference. Because it really felt wrong to me to pop a can open and pour it all down the drain or to throw it in the trash. And I knew that in the back of my mind, I still hadn't bought that Coors beer. I had nothing to do with acquiring that Coors beer. But I decided, well, let me give it a shot. It's been 20 years of actively boycotting this product and see, you know, what have I missed in all that time? I'll tell you, frankly, as a consumer, the answer is not much. There was not a thing in that beer that I would recommend it to overcome the fact that the original reason that I stood up and said, I'm not going to do business with you guys anymore, still stands. I think that in addition to the real legislative and uh, judicial danger facing gays and lesbians in this country right now, we also probably are more likely to be poised on the edge of a new wave of censorship than we have been in the past. Part of that is simply that Republicans tend to um, have less respect for the free speech aspects of the First Amendment. They tend to be more likely to be oversensitive to things in art and culture that are challenging and avant-garde and different and have a track record over the years, uh, George H.W. Bush coming to mind, of uh, using the office of the presidency to call for albums to be banned. And even here lately, uh, Meryl Streep wins a Lifetime Achievement Award in a career where her job is to speak and communicate effectively. And she is viewed by all of her peers, and frankly almost anybody with a brain, as being among the best ever in this profession. As an actor, a job that involves being able to speak and communicate other people's ideas effectively. Chosen this speech to share some of her own ideas, and by all accounts she spoke eloquently and well. But if somebody disagrees with what she has to say, suddenly we're attacking her, as people on the right side of the political spectrum for being somehow bad at her job. She must be a bad actress. Her politics are different than mine. Or she's an actress. She shouldn't be allowed to speak in public. That idea, to me, I find comically ridiculous. Somebody whose job it is to speak in public shouldn't be allowed to speak in public. I just told my friends on the right side of the spectrum, I'm going to need a complete and comprehensive, detailed and annotated list of everybody in our country who no longer has the right to speak in public about ideas that are important to them simply because of what their professions are. I need to understand what the professions are. And we're going to hit this again in our Different Drummers segment today because we're not that far away from hearing, if we haven't already heard, that, hey, you're the, you're the coach of a basketball team. You're not allowed to speak in public. You're a professional athlete. You're not allowed to have an opinion. You're just a musician. Shut up and play your guitar. 
which, by the way, is the name of an entire series of albums by Frank Zappa, who would agree with me 100% that it's not only important for artists to share their view and to use their talent, whatever it may be, to express their views, including political and religious views, that they're kind of failing as artists if they don't. So I got a real problem with this idea that we ought to be boycotting everybody who says anything that offends us. Well, at the same time, I haven't had voluntarily had a glass of 7-Up, a Coors beer product. I haven't invested in any way, directly or indirectly, at least within my control with Merrill Lynch. There's a whole set of people who funded the Parents Music Resource Center, who, when I was working in record stores, were directly threatening proposed legislation at the state level in some states to throw me in jail for selling certain albums. That I never really forgave that. If you're, you're spending your corporate dollars not figuring out how to feed the hungry or shelter the homeless. You're spending your corporate dollars trying to stifle artists because you don't like their music and trying to potentially, in some cases, imprison record store clerks for running the register that day when someone came in and bought it. Completely unacceptable. So is it possible over the course of 20 or 30 or 40 years to say, I'm done shopping with this organization, I'm never going to do it again, and live up to it? Yeah, I've done it. And I guess what I'm saying is, whether I'm uncomfortable with concepts like boycott or not, whether I think that people on one side of this political spectrum don't even seem to understand the concept, probably doesn't make the concept flawed. It probably makes the understanding and execution of that particular group of people flawed. What we're going to have to do, I'm afraid, and where we're going to have to gear ourselves up and be ready, is we're going to have to say to everybody who will listen, at all levels of any, any form of public accommodation, uh, so all businesses, for example, you fire an employee for no reason than being gay, I'm never shopping with you again. You refuse service for a customer who's not disrupting your company or uh, you know doing any of the things I described earlier. They're not haranguing and harassing your staff. They're not sexually harassing or assaulting anybody. They're not you know spitting on other customers or causing other disruptions. They're a good customer who wants to spend money for the products you say you want to sell to them. You refuse to do business with somebody on the basis of their color, their sexual orientation, their religious beliefs, their ethnicity. I'm done doing business with you. Now, here's why I think that it gives me pause and why I've never come out in favor of this idea prior to this particular moment in history, that it's a segregating concept. I'm playing in. I'm taking the bait. I'm helping to create uh, a world where there's businesses that do business with Christians and they don't do business with anybody else who's not an evangelical Christian. And then there's all the rest of the businesses. And I think that's terrible. I think segregation is a genuine evil. I think people who live in their own little bubble and refuse to interact with anybody who doesn't think, quote-unquote, exactly the way I do, that those are people who are committing a great evil. They don't understand what Jesus meant when he said, go and make disciples. They're betraying their faith. They're engaging in toxic, negative politics that, frankly, has been the norm as often as not in our country. Therefore, you put a strict constructionist type of a judge on the court and they come along and say, well, hey, you know, our Constitutional originally said that black people weren't really people. Therefore, maybe it's okay if we reinstitute those Jim Crow laws. You put an attorney general in place who's got a track record of treating people differently based on the color of their skin. And you got a real problem, both in the people who ought to be advocating for the rights of individual American citizens, who've had their rights stepped on by powerful corporations, or even by local business entities, not being all that willing to do the right thing. And maybe the judges they're talking to aren't that willing to do the right thing either. The conservative notion here 
and then maybe on the side of a hardcore libertarian, this isn't the end of the world as we know it, is because those folks will often talk about the power of the marketplace and the uh, market driving things. And uh, you have the power to speak with your wallet. And of course, that all depends on how much is in your wallet, mind you, and whether you're welcome to spend your money in that business, no matter how rich you are. But that idea, while not what I would consider to be the level of first resort, I would prefer a deontological answer. We have a duty to do the right thing. We take seriously the notion that all, all men are created equal, all women are created equal. But if we can't live up to the, to the actual tenets of the Declaration of Independence, and if we're not going to interpret the Constitution and what I consider to be properly, viewing some amendments as optional and some amendments as real and even within amendments, taking parts of the First Amendment seriously but other parts of the First Amendment not at all seriously, we don't need protection from the First Amendment when it comes to freedom of religion and the right to practice religion as we see fit. The protection's already there, but if we're going to misinterpret it, then maybe the only way we really can exercise a control, if the checks and balances are going to be so broken between the judicial, legislative, and executive branches that they're ineffective, then maybe the only way to speak is to speak with a pocketbook. Now, I don't know how this is going to play out when it's all said and done. I could see someone, preferably somebody else, but if it's got to be somebody like me, maybe it is somebody like me, paying attention to what is happening, both at a national and local level, and identifying which businesses are engaging in the kind of discrimination that these proposed executive orders would enable and perhaps even encourage. That that's an imperfect method because it would not be a full-time job. It would just be a catch-as-catch-can sort of thing. But if, if only a page at the top header of the Inappropriate Conversations website at www.inappropriateconversations.org, there was something there about, you know, Pharisee businesses and encouraging us not to spend money with Pharisee businesses, people who would put a flawed perception of their religious, you know, um, commands directly in the way of not only what Jesus taught about interacting with people, but logic and reason when it comes to the business model of trying to sell as much of my product as I possibly can to as many customers as I possibly can in the shortest duration of time as I possibly can that maybe those folks just need to be called out. And I would say that I even would include it at a corporate level, meaning that if one location, if one branch of a bank engaged in a discriminatory practice, firing a gay teller or whatnot, then I would hold that entire entity responsible, all the way up to the Bank of America as an umbrella organization, because I believe that corporate power is where the answer here probably lies to be Pollyanna about it, or maybe just positive about it. It is possible that this kind of power could be provided to every business person in America, and the only people who choose to use it are people who are so uh, insularly mom and pop that your average person who would be harmed by the discrimination would never encounter the discrimination. You know, if Jim Bob's Diner in BFE North Carolina stops serving black people, there might not even be black people who even notice, you know, so maybe on that level, maybe the way that some of these businesses interact with their customers has already created a de facto form of discrimination, has already segregated the force, because customers have gotten the idea over time that, well, they're not really welcome there anyway. And the, I, I didn't stop going to the restaurant because I perceived that they discriminated against me. I stopped going to the restaurant because the food was terrible and the service was worse. Well, maybe the food was terrible and the service was worse because the cook and the waiter were discriminating against you. You just didn't put two and two together. But Walmart here 
in just the last few years, has changed their corporate policy to very explicitly provide protection for gay and lesbian employees. A non-discrimination policy at the heart of one of the largest corporations, certainly in retail, in the world. And if they are willing to live up to the standards that they put on their website, then we may, we may be okay. That maybe there is one Walmart location in Alabama or Mississippi who, who screws up and refuses to do business with a, with a black lesbian because of some combination of the color of her skin and who she's in love with. But if Walmart steps in and shuts that down, puts the manager through some corrective training, fires people if need be, and sort of maintains that their corporate standard is going to rule the day, then maybe some of the largest companies in our country um, would immunize themselves from this toxicity. Uh, certainly you'd expect that Target wouldn't make a mistake here and start discriminating against people based on their religious beliefs or their sexual orientation. I would hope that Walmart wouldn't either. I don't know. We'll have to see. You hear conflicting things about uh, the Lowe's and the Home Depots of the world. I, again, I think, generally speaking, it's all positive. Might have to create a little bit of a window of tolerance for situations where the corporate entity is basically a franchiser and may, in some cases, not have as much power and control over individual franchises. But even then, if this thing plays out ugly, I'm going to be the one making some demands to say, what I want here is really simple. If we decide as a country that we're going to be okay with businesses discriminating against customers for any reason whatsoever and firing employees for reasons that have nothing to do with their job performance, I just want to sign. I want to sign in the window when I'm walking by the sidewalk that says we reserve the right to refuse service to gay and lesbian people. I just want to see the sign. I want to see the sign on the website that basically in their career section and their job opportunity section says, you know, we reserve the, the right to refuse to hire or to fire on the spot anybody who's married somebody who's not of a different gender. So I think that that would be the cue that I would look for because then that would make this so much easier. We wouldn't need to maintain some sort of a list to understand who is treating people with uh, fairness and love and equality and who is treating people in this form of quiet violence. And then you'd know right up front, I wouldn't accidentally buy a muffin from the wrong muffin store. Because I'd be able to read the sign on my way in, right next to the sign that says firearms aren't allowed in this building. You know, and that's what I would want. But we've seen cases, and I believe the state was Oklahoma, where a state legislature attached an amendment exactly like that to one of these proposed religious freedom bills. And it killed the bill. Because the people who wanted the religious freedom bill to be passed didn't want to have to own their bigotry. That's something about having to own up to the fact that, yes, I have bigoted views. I intend to discriminate against people based on these factors. Well, they, they, don't, they know you put that on the door. And you're not only, well, on the positive side, you're going to spare yourself the uncomfortable confrontation of having to tell somebody to their face after they've gone through the process of shopping that you're not going to bring up any of that merchandise that you don't want their money. Get the hell out of my store. So in some ways, it would save you a lot of restocking time. It would be a good idea. But the reason that Again, most people who want to discriminate don't want to put that sign up is that they know that, again, maybe 48% of the people in this country in the last election cast a vote in the election saying, there are things I may or may not like about Hillary Clinton as a candidate, but I certainly don't want to shop at a store that's going to discriminate against people based on who they love or the color of their skin or what their religious faith and practice is. That That's a pretty strong message. That's at least a business person recognizing that I probably don't want to be too public like that action sign store a few years ago 
and telling half the country not to shop at my store anymore. So it might be hard work in identifying and ascertaining which companies belong on this list, but there needs to be some kind of a list that all of us can basically say, listen, I'm against segregation. I'm not a fan of this idea. I never would have come up with this idea on my own. But no, the segregation as a concept is not coming from me. Somebody else has already said, I want to weed out all the people I don't like. If you voted for Obama, don't shop at my store. If you're in love with somebody of the same gender, don't shop at my store. If you've got some you know, issues between whether or not you feel like you're the, the gender that belongs with the biology that you've been given or the choice made by the doctor at the time of your birth, don't shop at my store. That's the point of segregation. I would just like for those people to own as quickly as possible the full economic weight of the decision to discriminate. And maybe the way to do that is to begin thinking that if that first domino falls, whether it be by the Supreme Court or the pen of Donald Trump, that we need to be ready to say, okay, if you've been given this power, I dare you to exercise it. Because the second you exercise it, I'm done with you. And I'm going to tell as many people who will listen, these are the places that are violating the kind of morality that I think we need to be standing up for. They've gone in a ends versus means kind of an approach, trying to control people without actually having to confront in a conversation that would reveal that, hey, maybe some of this stuff is beyond people's control. Maybe it's not something you can just electrocute somebody to where they either die or change their sexual preference. And maybe there's more to it than we've been told. And that the, call it a third of the country, who know this without having to be asked, because we live in a modern information age where a lot of things that people kept hidden in the past are now shared. It's not that people have changed who they are. They've just been given, because of the modern era we live in, the opportunity to be more honest than ever before. And I got a real problem with a group of people who presume to call themselves Christians, people like Franklin Graham, for example, who really just want all those people to start lying to us again. I don't want to do business. I don't have the confidence to do business with people whose very business model is based on an expectation that lying is a good thing and the more of us ought to do it. I mentioned in the main segment of this inappropriate conversation that the different drummer today would be someone falling more on the lines of coaching and athletics. It's Greg Popovich, the current coach of the San Antonio Spurs. Popovich is cited in Wikipedia as being an American basketball coach who is currently the coach of the Spurs in the NBA, taking over as coach of that team in 1996. Popovich is the longest tenured active coach in both the NBA and all U.S. major sports leagues. He's referred to as Coach Pop, or simply as Pop. Considered one of the greatest coaches in NBA history, he's currently tied with Pat Riley, regular season only, with 19 consecutive winning seasons, and behind Phil Jackson's 20, and well on his way this year to tying that mark. Popovich has won, as a coach, five NBA championships, all with the Spurs, a feat achieved only by four others in NBA history, Phil Jackson, Red Auerbach, Pat Riley, and John Kundla. He is one of nine coaches to have won 1,000 NBA games. So just looking at it from an athletics perspective, what is his record? At the time I'm recording, he's won 1,127 games in his career, 21 seasons in the NBA, and uh, he has lost 496. So a, almost a 700 winning percentage. More impressively to me, he's got a 617 winning percentage in the playoffs with a record of 158-198 uh, lost. 
that is an outstanding record. And the kind of person that you see players want to play for again. The kind of person who's gotten the most out of the players that he has drafted. He was a college basketball player at Air Force, served five years of required active duty service in the U.S. Air Force after graduating, during which time he toured Eastern Europe and the Soviet Union with the U.S. Armed Forces basketball team. In 1972, he was selected as captain of the Armed Forces team, which won the Amateur Athletic Union Championship. That earned him an invitation to the 1972 U.S. Olympic basketball team trials. During his time in college, he underwent Air Force intelligence gathering and process handling, and at one point considered a career with the Central Intelligence Agency. This person doesn't have a resume, that reads like somebody you'd think would be some kind of dangerous, raging liberal. And yet the reason I'm citing Popovich as a different drummer is not just his success on the court or on the sidelines, but his willingness to speak out. Because the other thing I think is in danger by being a lot more loose about whether or not you can get fired for just what you look like or who you're married to, or the idea that if you're crossing over as a Canadian citizen to visit the United States, should you be asked a lot of questions about who you might have voted for had you been a U.S. citizen? We're entering a Big Brother-style thought control era, and it's incredibly refreshing that Popovich works for an organization where he has got both the tenure and the record and the support to be able to speak his mind and say what he will. I think we're entering a point in American history where very few of us are going to be able to say that. We might come back years from now looking at different drummers that have been cited over the course of inappropriate conversations, or I might look back and find that Greg Popovich was indeed a huge anomaly. Not just the first different drummer that I see Greg is named with the name Greg. He's got an extra G on the end. It's not nowhere near the same. But also that he was in a moment in time when he was uniquely equipped to be outspoken and chose to do so. Let me share just some quotes here recently from Greg Popovich. There's a Sports Illustrated article that was published on February 3rd. Uh, Greg Popovich, Racism is America's National Sin. It quotes Popovich saying, among other things, this. If you were born white, you automatically have a monstrous advantage educationally, economically, culturally in this society. And all the systemic roadblocks that exist, whether it's in a judicial sense, a neighborhood sense with laws, zoning, education, we have huge problems in that regard that are very complicated, but take leadership, time, and real concern to try to solve. It's a tough one, because people don't really want to face it. And it's in our national discourse. Popovich, in the article, cited for also criticizing Trump for leading the birther movement, which falsely claimed that President Obama was not born in the United States, quoting Popovich. We have a president of the United States who spent four or five years disparaging and trying to illegitimize our president. And we know it was a big fake, but he still felt for some reason that it had to be done. I can still remember a paraphrase close to a quote. Investigators were sent to Hawaii, and you cannot believe what they found. Well, that was a lie. If it's being discussed and perpetrated at that level, then you've got a national problem. Greg Popovich. That was just this week as I'm recording. But earlier, 21st of January, right after the inauguration and during the women's march that you know, millions upon millions of people, men, women, and children, took to the streets to raise concerns about the direction the country might be going in, Popovich had this to say in a pregame interview before a nationally televised game between the San Antonio Spurs and the defending NBA champion Cleveland Cavaliers. Quoting Popovich, The march today was great. That message is important. And it could have been a whole lot of groups marching. And somebody said on TV, what's the message? Well, their message is obvious. 
Our president comes in with the lowest rating of anybody who ever came into office. And there's a majority of people out there, since Hillary won the popular vote, that don't buy his act. I just wish that he was more, had the ability to be mature enough to do something that is really inclusive, rather than just talking and saying, I'm going to include everybody. He could talk to the groups that he disrespected and maligned during the primary, and really make somebody believe it. But so far, we've gotten to the point where you really can't believe anything that comes out of his mouth. You really can't. All those thousands that were over the top of the rooftops on 9-11, there were two. When he went to Hawaii to check Barack Obama's birth certificate, and investigators couldn't believe what they found. There wasn't anything there. So it's over and over again. With the CIA today, instead of honoring the 117 people behind him where he was speaking, he talked about the size of a crowd. That's worrisome. That's worrisome. I'd feel better if someone was in that position that showed the maturity and psychological and emotional level of somebody that was his age. It's dangerous, and it doesn't do us any good. I hope he does a great job. But there's a difference between respecting the office of the president and the one who occupies it. That respect has to be earned. I'll stop there, but Popovich goes on and on. Again, a four-plus-minute answer to the question that he was asked on the record and on tape before a nationally televised TV broadcast, a game that the Spurs won in overtime, by the way. To end this different drummer segment, let me cite the one place where I think Popovich nails it completely. What would I have done if I were the president of the United States and millions of people across the country and even the world flocked to the streets to protest my presidency over things that I was on the record as saying? People who probably could be accurately described in a situation with no rioting, no violence, no property damage, no arrest, as simply coming together to raise their concerns. Trump was given the biggest opportunity that I can remember in years. I can't think of another president who's been given an opportunity to stand in front of all the people who've said all the negative things about him for more than a year now, throughout his candidacy, and say, I'm listening to you, I want to hear you, I won this election because I wanted to lead the entire country, so I'm going to watch every minute I can of every speech I can today. I'm going to take careful notes, and I'm going to bring the concerns that this half of America has raised into my cabinet and make it a part of our conversations. I know the people I put forth as cabinet nominees today don't look anything like most of the people who are marching right now. And perhaps it's a legitimate concern to say there's not a ton of women that I put forth in my cabinet and the ones he's put forth look more like cronyism than anything else. The people who gave the most to his campaign. The people who are married to people he's going to rely upon politically to get stuff done. All that being said, even if he didn't mean a word of it, which has been kind of his M.O., he had an opportunity to stand up and say, I hear you, I see you, I'm listening. And instead, as Popovich correctly noted, he spent the better part of a weekend denying that those people even existed. Crowds weren't that big. Numbers are overstated. I had more people at my inauguration. The people who came to support me, Trump said, are way more important than the majority of people who voted against me. Greg Popovich is in a unique position to speak up. More importantly, though, he's done so. We may be facing an opportunity in the near future to act up, to refuse to buy products that we've loved for years because the people who are running that company or the people who are running the local store of that company have decided that they're going to harm people who cannot control the thing that they're being targeted for discrimination about. We need to stand up and take as many risks as Popovich has taken 
to the degree that we're able. Inappropriate Conversations is coming up toward episode 200, and I currently don't have a plan for episode 200. I'm taking it as it comes. For the first time in the history of this particular podcast, I don't have six months to a year worth of shows that I've prepared and intended to get to at a certain point in time. The document that I use to schedule shows is less, maybe now less about a plan and more about uh, recording what happened. <laughs> so a month from now, two months from now, I'm going to hit a place where I don't necessarily have a solid game plan, meaning I don't know right now what 200 looks like. Episode 100 of Inappropriate Conversations was an origin show for the podcast itself, and I'd been thinking about that from almost day one. This one's going to be different. The only thing I can say that I am, in the back of my mind, kicking around and thinking about, and I said it earlier in the show, I'll say it again, considering asking people who think that Barack Obama was the worst president ever, to articulate the one reason they feel that way, not to go on some sort of a rant and tirade, but to really think and to boil down all the other issues and to come up with the one big problem that could persuade somebody like me that this is a failed presidency, that you know, the history books are going to remember it harshly. Because I'm not saying that I'm not open to the idea that Obama has very significant failings about which history ought to hold him accountable. I just don't think the things that I hold on his list of failings are what people are talking about when they're so hysterical and extreme about how bad he was. These are, ironically, the same people, by and large, who don't have a problem with writing laws, executive orders, judicial opinions that enable a huge chunk of Americans to discriminate against another huge chunk of Americans for things that are completely beyond their control. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation yourself, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at Hotmail.com. I mentioned earlier that I'm on Twitter as IC underscore Greg, that there's a Facebook page for inappropriate conversations. I'm on Stitcher, Smart Radio, with the last, say, 20 episodes of both inappropriate conversations and Walk the Earth sharing the same feed. I'm also using SoundCloud in fits and starts to put clips of the oldest shows. I started at the beginning. I've got myself up into the into the hundreds now, sharing an audio hint of what that particular inappropriate conversation was about along with a link to the website at inappropriateconversations.org for anyone who takes the hint and would like to listen to the entire thing online. In the meantime, though, thanks for listening. Thank you.
music by Kevin McLeod. This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find more shows over at pride48.com.